things out ahead of time. And <laughs> works perfect. ...to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erein. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Erene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and earth, restoring peace through his death. And resurrection. <laughs> Sorry. I love those videos. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The Bible Project is, um, you can find it on YouTube, and they've done four videos to take us through Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. And uh, we already have our hope candle lit, so I'm just going to light our peace candle. And um, yeah, this verse in Isaiah, <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah calls ahead to the coming Christ who's born in, um, we hear about the story in Luke, which we're going to talk about today. But this passage, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus brings shalom with no end. When I was in college, I took um, a couple of semesters of Biblical Hebrew, which I'm always sure to talk about at least once a year so that, you know, like, like boosts my pastor cred, you know, like I study this stuff, you know. And, um, and I remember my uh, professor, she also happens to be a nun, Dr. Nugent, talked about shalom this way. She said, it's like peace and wholeness for your whole life, even the parts of your life that you can't see, even the parts of you that are unseen. And that really captured my imagination, thinking about what parts of me are unseen. Um, there are so many elements of our person that no one else can see our thoughts and our feelings our moods, and even our mental health. And then there's our relationships and our community and our connectedness to our community. So last week in a sermon, and this was unplanned, I uh, made a public commitment that I was going to apologize to my neighbor and hold me accountable. I'll come back and tell you about it next week. And, uh, oh, that was such a terrible thing. <laughs> I feel like God tricked me, you know? Like, when you're preaching, it's like public speaking is a little hard. You getting input but trying to like keep cool and like give good output and that thought just like entered my mind like oh yeah I need to apologize to my neighbor I should tell everyone I'm going to apologize to my neighbor to make sure that I don't chicken out and then I said it and I immediately regretted it <laughs> and I spent the rest of Sunday and Monday and Tuesday thinking like oh what a dope I can't believe I said that now I have to go and talk to this lady so um my neighbor across the street actually um I've had a neighbor across the street for a long time She's a single mom, and um, she just had a baby, and then she's also had a roommate move in. So the roommate is like my new neighbor, and I have never met this woman before. And then her dog got out and kind of jumped up on my kid a little bit, but like I totally overreacted. It was a really friendly dog. My kid was fine, but <clears throat> I raised my voice, and I was critical, and um, it was awful. It was really bad. I don't even know her name. I didn't even know her name, and the very first interaction that she had with her neighbor, who she's going to find out is a pastor, um, it, was, it was really bad. And then I'm thinking about, like, my neighbor who just had a baby, and now I'm adding stress, and I had my kids come inside, and I was like, are you guys okay, you know? And they were like, no, we're really mad. And I'm like, yeah, because that dog is bad. And they were like, no, we're mad at you for embarrassing us. It was fine, and you were mean, and I just, uh, it was the whole thing. So then I, I, I took, like, many days of, like, trying to justify myself to myself. Do you do this? I, like, kept, like, retelling the story with, like, tiny little tweaks and edits in, like, my tone and word choice to sort of convince myself that I was in the right, you know, because, like, dogs are dangerous, and there's a dog down the street that's actually, you know, kind of, and I don't like, and shoot, they need fence, and they shouldn't have let it, and I was not, I was reasonable, you know, I just I kind of like kept going through this, like, or like thinking about like, what else, you know what I should have said, do you ever do that, you know what I should have said, and like, you get like the perfect zinger, like, oh, I should have said this, and um, it didn't work, you know, uh, the older I get, the less I buy my own press, <laughs> when I was a teenager, I could talk myself into stuff, you know, like, I could say like, I was right to do that thing, and my friend was wrong, and I would need external feedback. I need to get failure feedback from my friends staying mad at me to realize how wrong I was. But um, now that I'm a little more mature, maybe a little more wise, I'm like not wise enough not to yell at my neighbor over her friendly dog, but a little bit more wise than, uh, than my teenager times. I, um, when I try to retell myself the story and try to like get myself a little more into like the hero position in the story, I just, it doesn't work. Like I know, I'm, I know, I know it's not true. <laughs> 
So, um, so I spent a few days like really trying to get there, and I just couldn't. So, um, so then I did what I think like any like good like middle class American does with any problem, which is how can I buy my like how can I put a little money toward this? Like, <laughs> is there something I can purchase to make this just a little bit easier for me? I oh, know I'll buy her flowers. I'll show up with flowers, and then when I come to apologize, it'll be clear that I'm not back for round two. Like, here I am with flowers. I could have them delivered. I don't even have to go. Nah, my church isn't going to, they're not going to go for that. I'm like, I apologize. I mailed flowers to the lady and didn't see her at all. I, so accountability is good. So I went to the grocery store to get flowers, and I think I was hungry because I didn't come away with flowers. I came away with a pie. Um, but yeah, I think that's an apology pie. Like, I think I'd I, like, I kind of like, I'd rather have an apology pie than apology flowers. And um, also, I have to, like, thaw the pie and bake the pie, and then the pie has to cool, so I, like, buy myself, like, a few more hours. Like, I'm really slow walking this thing, you know? Like, I don't want to go say, I'm sorry, because I'm feeling really embarrassed. So, um, so I make a pie, and Josh comes home, and it's getting to the point that, like, this is the perfect moment to deliver the pie, and if I wait longer than this, two bad things will happen. One, my children will get home from school, and they will want pie, and they can't have, I'm not apologizing them, they're fine. Like, this is the other lady's pie, and I'll have to go buy a second pie. <sighs> anyway, or I'll have to disappoint, whatever. Anyway, so I gotta do it, and Josh says, do you want me to come with you? And I say, yes, please <laughs> come with me. I'm so worried about what's gonna happen. Why am I worried? I'm a grown-up, she's a grown-up, I have a pie, it should be okay. So we make this long, excruciating journey across the street, and, um, my neighbor is there, and she witnessed the whole thing, my neighbor with the new baby, but the new roommate's not there. Um, so I like, <laughs> I brought a pie, I'm really sorry, you know, and I'm kind of like getting ready to try, like I don't have an excuse, and I'm really, I raised my voice, and the dog is fine, and I'm, don't, I'm sorry, you know, like I'm kind of going through this thing. And do you know what happens is my neighbor, as she's holding her infant, recovering from like a C-section like two weeks ago, she just starts to pastor me and restore peace. And it was wonderful. She said, you know, she told me a story about how she yelled at one of the other neighbors, and one of the other neighbors yelled at her one time, and how everybody apologizes, and it all kind of works out fine. You know, and she said, this is, we all have a bad day. Everybody has an off day. It's okay, you know? And I said, will you tell your roommate? She's like, of course, I'll tell a roommate that you're sorry. She loves pie. Let's see, it's, it's okay, you know? And then we oohed and out over the baby for a little bit, and then we went back home. I have yet to have like a, a friendly, like an intentional like encounter with the roommate. So like there's still like a part two to this story that I haven't quite got across the line. But what I noticed was just like how I wasn't aware of it before I made this terrible mistake with my neighbor and was unkind. But we had peace before and I broke it. And the days that I spent kind of like repeating this conversation in my mind trying to make myself look better, all of that was happening. I was so anxious about it because I had broken the peace. And when I went with my pie and my husband and my apology, like all these buffers, um, you know, my neighbor really allowed me, she, she restored the peace, like by accepting me and forgiving me. She like put all of that back in place. And what we had before was kind of this piece of like, um, there's like an absence of conflict, you know, but it wasn't like this like meaty, real thing, you know, it was just like, you're over there, I'm over here, hey, hey, you know, our kids play or whatever. But now I'm starting to feel this peace that comes through, like we have weathered conflict 
And so now I think, I think we feel closer together. I feel like my neighborhood feels like just a better place to me in general, which is really strange because I didn't, I didn't feel like anything was missing before. But having gone through this, um, and yeah, I'm, kinda, I'm a little bit of an introvert, you know, so like I stay inside a lot of times. Like Josh, my husband, he's the one who goes outside and plays with the kids and does all that stuff. But um, it was good for me, you know, to like, like put down my walls a little and, and get out there a little and, and just see what God can do by me trying to be obedient to him in response to you know, me messing up some things. So I want to take some time this morning. In a minute, we're going to read about Zechariah. He also was missing peace, and his life had been denied peace um, for a long time, but for a different reason, not because he had done anything wrong, um, but just because he and his wife um, struggled with infertility. And uh, before we do that, I just thought that maybe we could take some time to uh, turn our attention to God together. We'll just, like, hold some silence and prayer together and be, uh, express gratitude to God for the places where we do have peace. I'll be expressing gratitude for how my neighborhood feels again. And then also um, seeing what God has to say about the places where maybe we don't feel like we're experiencing peace. And maybe that's a broken relationship, or maybe that's you know not having the situation that you want at work, or um, maybe it's something else that I, I don't even know. You know, it's like this very private and personal. So let's just take a moment and let's pray. One thing that we like to do here sometimes is it's called a breath prayer where as we breathe in, we just say silently in our minds, God, you are here. And then as we breathe out, we say, and I am with you. So let's just do that a few times. We'll be quiet together and then I'll close us in prayer in just a second. So God, you are here and I am with you. God, you are here and I am with you. Come on, Ruby. Lord, thank you for your presence. God, I can feel you like heavy in my hands. It's cool. Lord, will you be with us through the rest of this sermon? Would you speak to each one of us individually in a way that we can hear? Would you give us the peace? Would you restore peace in our lives the way that you want to? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for Zechariah, he, um, he's been denied peace and wholeness, like a wholeness in his family for a long time, for his whole married life. And then something remarkable happens in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He was a pastor. They're going to find out I'm a pastor who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, 
He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be a great for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He has never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So then we get a part of the story where Elizabeth uh, meets with her cousin, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and they have an interaction about Mary's pregnancy, and Mary sings a song. Um, and when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about this, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. The Lord's hand was with baby John. Isn't that a wonderful story? I love this story. This is one of our favorites. Um, one of the reasons this is a favorite story around our household is because my youngest son, Ender, who is eight, has... Um, <laughs> A particular way of describing Gabriel and likes to quote Gabriel's lines in this story. Ender says that Gabriel is a sassy angel. <laughs> and then he does an impression of Gabriel. He says, I am Gabriel and I serve the Lord and I was sent to tell you these things and now you'll be quiet. And he gets his little finger and he kind of cocks his hips to one side and he just gets like gets really sassy about the whole thing, which is such a funny thing because I don't usually connect that word with like a description of, um, of an angel of the Lord, 
but uh, you know, I think, I think he makes a fair point. <laughs> I think Gabriel does seem to be a bit offended and, um, you know, kind of like sets a boundary and says, look, <laughs> like your response to this of saying, how can this be? And we're very old, like, really, man? Like an angel has told you this is going to happen. You still not an angel. Like I'm an angel, dude. Like, here, look at me, <laughs> you know? And it just really makes that whole story really real for us in our house. But I think let's zoom in a minute about this idea of Zechariah not being able to speak. This is so interesting to me. One, it feels like kind of an echo back to Sarah and Abraham. So you remember Abraham and Sarah, original patriarchs, they can't conceive. They can't have a baby. And then God comes along and says, when I come back a year from now, Sarah's going to have a son. And Sarah is like listening in, because wouldn't you listen in if God like showed up? And, um, <clears throat> and, um, and, and she laughs and says, oh, yeah, like kind of like a sarcastic laugh. We, we pick up some context clues and says, no way, because I'm really old. And, um, and then God's like, why did you laugh? Like, I told you the truth. And she says, I didn't laugh. And he's like, yeah, you laughed. Like, it's just very, like, it's a very, like, father-daughter moment, I think, of like, yes, you did. Like, who do you think you're talking to right now? And, um, and so Sarah has this same kind of response. And I think about Zechariah and Sarah that, like, I've heard this preach that like Zechariah not being able to speak was like punishment for him being faithless. <clears throat> and I think that's probably like, certainly Gabriel seems to take offense and that seems like a reasonable way to interpret this text. Um, but we might understand this just a little bit differently or like with maybe a little more nuanced. Um, one is, as I'm thinking of parents and children, because I always think of Ender when I, when I think of my son, when I think of this story, um, one thing that kind of comes that strikes me about the passage is almost like Gabriel is calling a timeout, or he's saying like, "Time to play the quiet game." If you're a parent, <laughs> have you ever done this in the car? Maybe if you've got like a couple of kids, or maybe just like a sassy kid. I don't know. Where it's like the quibbling starts, you know, like Yahana, ah, don't touch me, ah, da 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 da. Like I, I like I, that's a handy tool for me as a mom. Like I reach for the quiet game with regularity. Let's play the quiet game because the quiet game does a couple of wonderful, beautiful things in our car. One is it restores silence and peace and no more like little boy voices. And the end of that is such a wonderful thing. The other thing that it does, though, is it really changes our attention, right? So whether somebody poked somebody or pinched somebody or whoever's touching who or looking at who or whatever, suddenly we have a new objective and the objective is to win a quiet game. So we get quiet, but we want to talk about how we're going to win. And we kind of want to force somebody else into losing, so things get a little bit funny and giggly. And then, like, maybe Dad will say something and, like, I like, lose the quiet game just now, but I don't want to say he lost the quiet game because I don't also want to lose the quiet game. And, like, it just turns into this whole thing. And, like, at least at our house, like, the quiet game usually turns quibbling into mirth, <laughs> mirthful competitiveness. That's where the quiet game takes us. It just like turns our attention. We forget whatever is the thing that we were worried about before, and we get focused on a new thing. And I think that Zechariah probably got focused on a new thing. I think that in saying like, but I'm old, I can't, like this doesn't even compute, how can we have a baby now? I think, you know, suddenly like being unable, unable to speak surely got him to thinking about what's really going on here. I've just been visited by an angel. My wife is gonna have a baby. My son is going to be a big deal, apparently. Like, this is cool. You know, like, I mean, like, there's all these things that are going on with this. So I like to think about that of, like, Zechariah just got assigned to the quiet game so that he could process what's going on. The other thing is, as, as Zechariah makes this statement of disbelief, 
what's the very next thing that he, the, the very, like what happens when he starts to be able to speak aloud? He doesn't speak for his wife's whole pregnancy. Um, and then he like doesn't speak for like the first seven days of the baby's life. Do you catch that? Like that's something I never really picked up on before I had kids, but like I'm sure that Zechariah like culturally was probably expected, there were lower expectations of him on what he contributed with a new baby of the house than were on my husband. But like I needed Josh's help when I had babies. Like those first seven days, there's a lot of like, can you please get me that? And can you please change a diaper? And can you please help out? And like, we have lots of needs and there's things going on. And the inability to communicate in that moment, I think must be um, rather inconvenient. But the first thing that, that the, the, the way that Zechariah gets back to speaking is he writes something that is obedient to God and it's true. He says, the boy's name is John. In the same way that um, my experience as a new mom and <laughs> what I can expect from my husband <laughs> as a new mom is probably a little bit different than Elizabeth's with Zechariah, I think we also, we might miss this cultural expectation here. Saying that they're going to name the boy something besides his father's name is a much bigger deal back then than now. Like right now, maybe you know a couple of people that son has father's name, you know, like little Jimmy and Big Jim or whatever. But like back then, like everybody would do that. And so Elizabeth saying, no, 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 don't name him Zachariah, maybe even seemed a little bit scandalous. Like is she trying to take status away from her husband? Is she like confessing to adultery? Like what is going on? Like why wouldn't we name him Zachariah? And the way that the, the relative, like the friends are like, but you don't have any relatives named John. I feel like that's almost like they think she's gone crazy or something. Like there's a little like, but honey, you know, like they're trying to like, like help her like slowly walk through, like make the connection of like, there's nobody for you to name him John after. Like, remember your husband's name is Zechariah. I know childbirth is hard. You probably haven't slept in days, but like your husband's name is Zechariah. So your baby's name needs to be Zechariah. I just think of like some meddling women helping this way. And I think of them because I probably, I am one of them. Like, I would have been one of those people being like, honey, no, no, no. We all know that his name is Zechariah, right? Come on now. And, um, and Elizabeth is like, nope. She just like totally ignores what culture's telling her to do. And then Zechariah does the same thing. And I think it probably cost him, you know? Like, there's like this like father-son connection he's probably been dreaming about for his whole life, has given up on. Now it's been restored to him but he doesn't get to have the same name as, as his boys. Like that's, you know, and if you think that's not a big deal to you, imagine if your child had a different last name than you. Because that's one that we do expect in our culture and our society, right? Like what if I change my name back to my maiden name and then I change my son's names to their maiden name? Um, you know, now like what would that mean for my husband whose kids don't have the same name as him? I think he actually would be less concerned for himself. I think he'd worry about what his dad thinks. Like what would my dad think? If my dad doesn't have the same last name as his grandson through his son, you know, like we have some pressure around these names as a way to communicate how we're connected and, and, and we like what's important to us. Like there's some values here that's more than just what's a name. So Zechariah does this obedient thing to God. His name is John. He's like gotten the message. What the angel said is true. Look what the angel said is true. So his name is John. And then Zechariah is able to speak. Zechariah takes one obedient step toward the Lord, and then he is released from this, like, quiet game, be silent, time out, time that he's had to experience. <clears throat> I think that this is really important, you know, <clears throat> I think a lot of times about how pregnancy is really good preparation for delivery, like labor and delivery, 
um, if you got pregnant and then, uh, like, I hope this isn't an overshare, but if I had gotten pregnant and then had to, like, go into labor, like, two weeks later, I don't think I, I would, I would, I'd be like, nope, <laughs> like, I don't think I want to do this, you know? But after nine months of carrying a baby and things are growing and stretching and all that stuff, like, you're ready for labor and delivery when the time comes, like, all this time of pregnancy, you had lots of time to kind of get ready for it, and then when it's time to go through kind of an intense physical experience, like, you're ready for that. And then I think that, like, labor and delivery is really good preparation for being a parent. Because, um, and I, I, all the moms would know, and I think everybody else can use their imagination pretty well to say, you know, going through labor and delivery, there's this moment where it's like, everything feels bad, and my only choice is to get through this. Like, there's nothing I can do but go through. Like, like the only way out is through, and that's it. And you just have to totally submit yourself to this process of, like, having a baby, that's what's going to happen. Nobody can, like, tag me out. My husband can't take a turn. Like, there's not a pill they can give me that suddenly <laughs> my baby will be born. Like, I just have to work through this. And that's true whether you get an epidural or you get a C-section or, oh, I'm free with my medical discussion today. But, you know, like, no matter what, like, you just have to, like, settle into, like, this is what's going to happen. And I think as a parent, I've used that skill a bunch of times of, like, you know what? Like, there's some things I just had to submit to when I, my babies were little. They're crying in the middle of the night, and I just have to get up and take care of them. Somebody has filled a diaper right before we're supposed to go someplace fancy, and we just have to stop everything and deal with that. Little baby is hungry and crying right in the middle of, I'm having a conversation with a friend, and I just have to submit to this. The only way out is through. We just have to do these things. I think about Zachariah and Elizabeth and John, the son that they had, and I think that the way that they stand up to cultural expectations in naming their son John was important preparation for them as parents because they were entrusted with raising this revolutionary man. He was going to eat weird. He was going to dress weird. He was going to go live out in the desert. He never drank wine. I'm not sure, did he not cut his hair? Like, he just all this weird stuff. And in doing so, he develops the strength to be able to speak truth to power and to stand and to say, this is the Lamb of God. He's able to recognize Jesus in a way that the rest of the people of Israel were not able to recognize. And he lost his life for it. John's life is not just all kittens and rainbows. He died a martyr because he would not compromise on the truth. When he got all of the cultural pressure put on him to act differently, just to get in line, just to do things the way they've always been done, like you're just one of the little people, sit down and be quiet, he didn't. And I think one of the reasons, I'm, I'm guessing here, you know, but like I read into this text, I see a couple of parents that God said, I need you to choose me over what's normal and over what's culturally acceptable. And in doing that, I think as parents, they were able to be that model to John and raise John in that way of choose God over what's normal and what's culturally acceptable. We're going to circle back around that to the end, but first I want to spend a little bit of time talking about peace. Having peace, not having peace. What does it feel like? Um, this week I watched the movie Moneyball. Has anybody seen that movie? It's a baseball movie. Okay, so like I'm not a sports fan. Like even, like not even close. But I love sports movies. Like I love movies about sports. Like weirdly. Like Miracle, the hockey movie, I have watched it six times. 
Um, Moneyball, this was like my fourth watching of Moneyball, and I'm always a little confused. Like, I have this kind of out-of-body experience where I'm like, why are you watching a sports movie? You don't know anything about sports. But I really like it. And I think because, like, you just, like, it costs me nothing, but it's just all the good feelings, you know? Like, oh, the game, and look at them train, and they're improving, and they're going off to a goal, and they're going to win, and isn't that great? And, like, no one is in danger. Like, it's not superheroes where people's lives are on the line and stuff. It's just, like, the fans and, like, the feelings, you know? I just like all the good feelings that have to do with sports without any of the, like, like watching, like, a whole baseball game, something I think I actually have not done in my entire life. I don't think I've ever, like, start to finish. I don't think it's ever happened. Um, so I'm watching Moneyball, weirdly, and it's about the Oakland A's, and they have a budget that's, like, a fifth of the New York Yankees budget, and they've lost some good players, and we've got this guy. It all hinders on, the whole story focuses on this guy, Billy Bean, who's the manager of the team. He's played by Springfield's own Brad Pitt. And uh, Billy Bean <laughs> was a Major League Baseball player when he was a kid right out of high school. He got drafted, and, and is that the right word? And then he like kind of flamed out after just a couple years, and he switched over to being a scout, and now he's a manager. And he's made a friend whose name I don't remember, um, but uh, his friend is like really good at math and statistics and is like, we could do a different thing. There's these undervalued players and we'll get them. They do this whole cool, weird, unusual baseball thing. Uh, you watch the movie. I probably don't need to retell you the whole movie. Anyway, um, so they get to the point where it starts to work. They're like weird strategy that everybody says isn't going to work. It starts working and the team starts to win. And we find out pretty quickly through like some flashbacks to Billy Bean like failing as a baseball player himself that he has a superstition. He doesn't stay and watch the games in person. He always leaves. He like hides in his office or he goes and does a workout in like the player's gym, but he never stays in the stadium to watch the game. He never sits at a TV and watches the game. Maybe he'll like turn on the radio in here and then he'll turn it off right away. And we figure out over time that he thinks he's a bad luck charm. He thinks that like him doing badly as a baseball player is like a sign, you know, and like if, if maybe if, if I'm watching the game, it's going to go bad. And I think we've all felt that sometimes, right? Like my presence, just like me being here ruined everything. You know, I, I think like he's kind of got that kind of a feeling. So his team starts to win and they win a game and then win two games and it starts to get what, what they call in baseball a winning streak. And like five games in, six games, and they break this record of this team, and then they win some more games, and they break that record of that team, and then they get to, it all hinges on game 20. They win 19 games in a row, which ties them with some record. I tried looking this up on Wikipedia to like be sure. I was like, this morning, I was like, is it 19? And then it was game 20. And like other teams have won more games than that, but like back in the 1800s, so it doesn't count because it's not official. I don't, I don't understand baseball. I don't understand. But according to the movie, um, Game 20 is the big deal. It's 2002. If they win 20 games in a row, they're like, they've done it. They've broken the record. And it's time to play the game. And Billy Bean drives out of town. His daughter calls him, and she's like, hey, good luck today. Please tell me you're watching the game. And he's like, nope, I'm headed up to this other city to check out the minor leagues or whatever, whatever. And she's like, dad, like, please, like, go watch this game. Like, this is arguably the most important game of his whole career. And he's like leaving town because he wants to get as far away from it as possible so that he doesn't bring his bad luck. And then he turns, he goes on the phone, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. He turns off the, like he goes on the phone, he turns on the radio, and his team is up 11 to 0. Now, even I know in baseball, 11 to 0 is like a pretty good score. Like, that's good. So he says, man, and he like turns off the road. I don't know if this really happened in Billy Bean's life, but it was awesome in the movie. He turns off, he drives back to the stadium. 
he walks in, he starts to watch. His little friend, his statistics guy, like sees him and it's like, you know, it's like a moment of like, oh, he's trusting himself, he's watching the game. And then something bad happens. I wish I could tell you what it is. An error or something, a foul, I don't know. The other team scores. And then the other team scores again. And then the other team scores again. And you can see this guy is like, Brad Pitt's such a good actor, right? He's just like very subtly like crushed, like I'm ruining it. So he goes and hides in his office and the other team scores again and again and again. It's 11 to seven, it's 11 to eight, it's 11 to 11, it's tied. Most important game, game 20. Are they gonna break the streak or not? They get tied at 11, 11. And then our underdog guy, again, I don't remember this baseball player's name, but he's played by Chris Pratt. I know who Chris Pratt is. He goes up to bat and he hits a home run. And this is what, I, I'm just not, I'm trying to do the sports thing, right? He hits the home run and they win the game. By some baseball magic, him hitting the home run means they immediately win the game. I don't know why that is. Everyone is happy. It's happy baseball music. I'm happy. Simple, good, happy feelings. They won the thing. They got the streak. 20 games. Isn't that awesome? I really like sports movies so much. Um, maybe I should watch baseball. Maybe I have an inside baseball fan waiting for me somewhere. But this has been about Billy Bean not watching the game. I'm thinking about this. And I've been thinking about this passage on Zechariah, and I see a similarity here between these two. And I think that for both of these, we see that some of us have been without shalom for so long. We've been without wholeness, and we've been without peace for so long that we have accepted brokenness as a part of our identity. Does that resonate? Maybe for you or maybe for somebody you know. It's like we just get to a point where we say, this is just who I am. Like, it's just not in the cards for me. This is my fate. Things aren't going to go well for me. And it's, and it's so many bad things have happened to me. I've been disappointed so many times. Maybe for Zechariah, you know, like, you know, because when you're trying to have a baby, there's like, there's this monthly cycle that you're paying attention to and you're really hopeful. And then the period comes and you're really hopeful. And then the next month, nope. And then you're really hopeful. Maybe this is it, you know, and then nope. And it just goes on and on and on. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, this would have gone on for years. They're, they're very old, like they've been through this for a long time. For Billy Bean, he had all of these hopes to become this great baseball player. He got drafted out of high school. He skipped a scholarship. He didn't go to Stanford. He got right into the show. See, I learned my terms. And he, uh, and, he, and he didn't make it. He just struck out again and again. He made all kinds of errors. He got caught on the key. He actually took himself out. He said, I'd like to switch from being a baseball player to being a scout, like he, he, like he let the dream go. And I, I don't know that it has to be all about, I like the Billy Bean example because it's not always about babies, right? I mean, like uh, some of us have struggled with infertility and I know that can be so painful, but I think that's like a good representative, a placeholder of all the kinds of hurts that we experience in life, right? Some people are called to holy singleness. Some couples don't want to have babies. This isn't about babies. This is about yearning and wanting and being disappointed, and what do we do when our peace is lost? What do we do when the, we're just disappointed again and again, maybe in work or maybe in relationships? What do we do when it's just, it's still hard, and it just starts to feel like, maybe this is me. Maybe I'm the one doing this. Maybe this is just how it always has to be for me. Like, so what does God do in these kinds of moments? God sends Gabriel, an angel who serves the Lord, God brings peace and restoration. And for Zechariah, Zechariah got this like, this like early warning, right? Like the angel visits and says it's going to go great. And then when John is born and then when Jesus is born and then when Jesus 
goes up on the cross and, and dies for humanity like this is, and then, and then overcomes death and comes back to life and ra- is raised from the dead. Like we see Jesus provide peace, like an avenue to peace for all of us, no matter what. No matter our luck, no matter the kind of families we were born in or raised by, no matter what's happened in the past or what we're afraid might happen in the future, every single person in this room has something in common, and that's that God loves you and that he sacrificed himself so that you could be made whole, so that you could have peace between you and God and so that you could be part of God's work in bringing peace to others. So what do we do when our shalom is gone? Um, I think the first thing we can learn from Zechariah is to stop talking. That doesn't seem very nice. Let's say to take some time for silence. We can take some time for silence. When our peace is missing, we can pray, we can read scripture, we can meditate, and by which I just mean like we can be in God's presence and see what he has to say, just like what we did this morning together. It doesn't even have to take very long. Um, we can use a breath prayer. We can introduce curiosity about the, our disappointment. We can say, God, what do you think about this? What do you think about this problem that I've had? I don't have any peace about this. I don't have no idea what you would say to this. I don't know what's going on. Another thing that we can do like Zechariah is that we can take a step toward God in obedience. We can reject society's answers for us about what will bring peace because our culture is offering us so many answers, right? Like it used to be they just could get to us through like advertisements and TV shows and the news, but with social media, like there are so many messages all the time saying this is what's going to make it better, this is what will make it go away. Here's something you can buy. Here's something you can spend money on. Here's a way that you can um, be more productive. Here's some self-help. Or maybe even, like, take time for self-care. Now, I've got to be careful here because self-care is good. Like, I want us to take care of ourselves. God wants us to take care of ourselves. He wants us to get good sleep. He wants us to eat healthy diets. He wants us to pray and and not be stressed. But sometimes I'll be reading an article about self-care, and it really seemed like it's more like selfish care. You know, put yourself first, spend money on yourself, break your commitments to other people. You're the most important, and this will help you. If you just put yourself first, that's what's really going to make it better. And some people do really struggle with not being able to um, take, care for, take care of themselves and, like, set healthy boundaries. And I want you to do all of those things. I just also really want to say, like, self-care should always bring us closer to Jesus. When I put myself at the center of my care, I I don't find that that's very successful for me. When I orient my life around Christ, I find that I have all the benefits that are promised on that self-care route, only only like my soul feels better, you know, and like I'm able to like connect with God more deeply in a way that maybe maybe I didn't even imagine was possible before. Another thing that we can do is we can say true things. When Zechariah says his name is John, this is an obedient, an act of obedience, he's also saying, saying something that's truth. And we need to speak the truth over ourselves and we need to speak it over others. Read the Bible aloud. Encourage and, and be encouraged. Because the truth is, is that the king of the universe loves you. He's very interested in you. He cares deeply about you. And he cares about all the ways that your peace has been robbed or has been broken. God thinks about you all the time. He's like that big and that powerful that he can be aware of you always. 
Psalm says when we stand up and when we sit down and when we go out and when we come home and when we lay down and we go to sleep and we wake up, God's always thinking about you. And he loves you. And he has good things for you. We live in a broken world. We participated in breaking that world, right? Every time we sin, we break it worse. We also have our enemy, Satan, who really wants the world to be broken and will help us break it and will do things to break it himself. We live in a broken world, but God isn't overwhelmed by the brokenness of our world. He's not anxious, up in heaven, far away from us, wondering, what am I going to do? It's gotten, like, really bad. Billy is driving away from the game. I don't know if I can make the Oakland A's win or whatever. (laughs) God's not doing that. God is with us in the brokenness and in the mess. And not only can he fix all the things that are broken, he can also use the fact that it was broken to redeem us and others. God's not afraid of the problems that we have. He's able to breathe life into us in our big struggles, and then even even bad things can turn into something that's really, really wonderful. Zechariah says some true things over his son. This is the second part of his song he sings. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Would you stand? This is a big moment in our service today. Um, I really see this sermon as like just priming for this, where we take time to turn our attention to God. We're going to sing another song. The band is going to come. And if you'd like prayer, we'd love to invite you to come up to the front, either in the middle or on the sides. Someone who's been trained will put their hand on your shoulder, and they'll pray for God's peace for you. They'll do all the work. You just say what's wrong, and then the person praying for you, they'll do the heavy lifting, and you just receive. As we sing and as we pray and as we close the service, I just believe that God has peace to give us now. And for this next season, this Advent season, when things can get so busy. So let's just pray real quick. Lord, would you just be real to us in these next moments as we sing your praise one more time? God, if you've got business to attend to with us, would you call our attention to that? Would you help us to experience you in a new and a real way? We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Let's sing one more song together.